So I will always remember my first time at an overnight Boy Scout summer camp. You know, those camps where they teach you to camp in the woods, uh, whittle sticks, shoot guns, make fires, overcook s'mores, and do all sorts of odd tasks that they give you badges for that make you way too proud as a kid. Yeah, no big deal. I got my I'm getting lost in the woods merit badge. Pretty cool like that. Anyway, it was my first journey away from home. And I was so excited. I mean, come on, what more could a kid want? It's a week without parents doing what the pamphlet described as every cool thing I can imagine, minus the uniforms, but I could live with that. But y'all, here's the thing. I went and I hated it. I remember calling my parents crying the second day. I want to go home. It was embarrassing. And no, they didn't give me a merit badge for that one. See, it was a disaster. And it wasn't even that, I, that the camp didn't deliver. It had everything that was promised. The first day was actually pretty great, out in the woods having fun. No, what was awful was that first night. I still remember it. The day ended. I got ready for bed, and then I went to my quarters. And as I lay in my bed, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This wasn't my home. The totality of it fell on me all at once. This bed wasn't my bed. These noises weren't the noises of home. These kids weren't my friends or family. All the comfort of home, my toys, my blankie, my Red Sox pillow, the AC, they were all gone. Worse, that ultimate comfort, my parents were as far away as they had ever been. And suddenly, I just felt sick. I just felt alone. I felt so far from home physically and emotionally. And I just broke down and cried. And honestly, I don't remember if I made it the whole week. I actually think my parents rescued me. They came and picked me up. But I do remember that it was the first major time I realized that there was this thing labeled home in my mind and heart a place and people that could make me feel this sick and sad when I was away from it or felt that I had lost it. And it's ironic now, looking back, because I've become quite the traveler. I've learned to feel at home pretty much anywhere. But I have had that feeling since, that loss of home sensation. I felt it just in far deeper ways. I felt it during my first major breakup, that first time I looked at another person as my home and then lost them. I felt it each time I've experienced death and grief. When my childhood cat died, when I lost my grandparents, when my uncle died the day before my wedding, when my best friend was killed in a sudden car accident. I felt it when I blew my life up after college and watched my plans for a career I had worked for slipped through my fingers. Each time, I felt that same sensation from childhood. There was something that gave me a sense of safety, comfort, security, love, warmth, a place, feeling, or person that I had come to think of as my home that was now, for whatever reason, distant, far away, or gone. 
And it's a terrible feeling, really. You're left in this nowhere place after you lose it. You feel stuck in uncertainty and instability. It's actually a place that I've come to think of as exile, living far away from what you once called home, knowing you can't go back and that you don't know where to go next and that you can't stay where you are. And that sensation sticks with you for a time. You eventually learn to just live in exile for a season, to make do with it. That is until you eventually learn to return to a new home, one built out of what you've learned and experienced along your wandering. A return takes place to a new kind of home after exile from where, what, or who you used to be. Home, exile, return. Some of the most human themes there are and themes you have to understand if you're going to approach the biblical story and the Old Testament prophets that we've been exploring in our series, What a Wonderful World. Exile is at the center of the story of Israel that the prophets reside in. And that longing for return is a crucial part of their message. See, the prophets predict an exile that God's people will face and the pain that comes with it. But... As we've been exploring in this series, underneath their warnings of exile lies a wonderful vision for God's people, humanity, and our world. A promise of a return for those in exile and an invitation to find a wonderful new home on the other side. And to explore these themes of home, exile, and return, we're going to focus on one prophet in particular today. A prophet that speaks to these themes more than any other. The prophet Jeremiah, whose book is actually the longest book in the Bible and perhaps the most depressing. You see, Jeremiah was the son of a priest living outside of Jerusalem, which meant that from birth, he was on the fast track to being a priest too. A highly respectable calling in Israel's culture. But at a young age, probably his late teens or early 20s, God encounters him and calls him to be a prophet. It's a mountaintop experience, an unbelievable start to a career. How many of us, when we were 20, or even still now, prayed to God saying, hey, God, maybe you could come down from heaven and tell me I've created you for this exact special purpose. I mean, it's an amazing moment. It leaves us thinking Jeremiah is destined for greatness. This is so exciting, but not so fast. See, we then learn about his calling, his message for God's people at a specific time in their story. And it changes everything. We read in Jeremiah 1, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. And through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. This is a historical hyperlink that we often see in the prophets. It's given to us so we can find Jeremiah in this larger story, specifically in this larger story tied to that last word, exile. 
You see, what we get from this verse is that it places Jeremiah's calling, the beginning of his ministry, around 626 BC, which is really important. You see, previously, God's people had split into a northern kingdom, Israel, and into a southern kingdom, Judah, which is Jeremiah's home. And Israel's kings were pretty terrible. They had led Israel into idolatry and justice and violence. And about a century before Jeremiah is called, they reject God's path of peace, pursue war with the Assyrian empire and lose. And the outcome of that is that Israel, this Northern kingdom's inhabitants are taken to Assyria as slaves. And now what we know from these dates is that Jeremiah arrives as a prophet in a pretty hard time. Because what we know is that around this time, Judah, Jeremiah's home, was beginning to head down the same path. Judah's kings, like Israel's, adopted idolatry and justice and had begun scheming with the surrounding nations to seek worldly power. And they had found themselves on their own war path with the new empire on the block, Babylon, the biggest, baddest empire there was. And it was a war that they would lose if they pursued it. But it was a war that Judah's overconfident, power-hungry kings were intent on going after. That's the anthill Jeremiah steps into as God's messenger, sent to try and convince Judah to change course before it's too late, before they end up in the same situation as Israel had. And believe it or not, Giving that message to those terrible kings, speaking truth to that kind of power in the world, makes Jeremiah's life miserable. It is not a job you should want. What we read over and over again is that Jeremiah tries desperately to get through to Judah. He preaches, he confronts the kings, he performs public demonstrations. He tries anything to shake Judah awake, to get them to change course. But he's ignored every time. He's beaten. He's, his prophecies are burned. He's rejected. Even as Babylon besieged Jerusalem, even at the end of the war, Jeremiah's message is ignored. He's labeled a traitor to his country and he's thrown in prison. And in 586 BC, after 40 years of ministry, of trying to get them to see where they're heading, the worst happens. Jeremiah watches as Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar levels Jerusalem's walls, burns the city, destroys the temple of God, kills the royal family, and takes God's people in chains to Babylon into an event called the Babylonian exile, the most devastating moment in Judah's history. I mean, God's people lose everything in this moment. It's almost impossible for us to imagine they lose their kingship, their self-rule. They lose the temple, the promised land. They lose their purpose in the world. They lose their sense of God's presence with them. They lose their home. I mean, this is why Jeremiah is so heartbreaking. He's a man trying to plug leaks, sprouting from cracks in a dam, who does everything he can and still watches the most horrible outcome happen. And in this, we watch Jeremiah struggle with doubt, disappointment, even anger with God. We watch him ask over and over, why God? Why me? Why is this happening 
to your people. But in that exile, we also see that Jeremiah gives this promise of return. He writes this beautiful passage, one of my favorites in Jeremiah 31. We read, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword will find favor in the wilderness and I will give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. You virgin Israel will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with joy. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, come, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says, sing with joy for Jacob, shout for the foremost of the nations, make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them back from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. It's this beautiful poem about God leading his people back through the desert they traveled through into exile, where he felt most absent from them. That's where he's promising them that he is and will be present. God guiding them back through the barren, rocky paths that felt despairing, that felt impassable on their way to Babylon, only this time leading them along streams, making their paths level, Inviting everyone, even the blind, lame, and pregnant mothers, people we think couldn't make such a hard journey in such a wilderness. All of them are depicted as returning home with God to plant life in the spaces that looked dead, to find joy in the spaces that used to bring them grief because they know their God is always with them. In the midst of exile, God promises a beautiful return. And here the story actually gets interesting. You see, while Israel is in exile, Babylon falls, as all empires eventually do in history. And it's replaced by the Persian Empire. And in 539 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, lets the Israelites return to the promised land. And for a moment, in Israel's history, it looked like Jeremiah's promises of return had arrived. Until the next empire came along, as they always do this time the Roman Empire. And once again, God's people fell under pagan rule. And in that, God's people began to believe that the exile never actually ended. They longed for the real Jeremiah moment when God would finally bring his kingdom once and for all, defeat his enemies for good, establish his king, temple, land, and people forever. This was the moment that Israel began to long for under Roman control. And it's that story that Jesus walked into announcing that Jeremiah's return had finally come through him, but in a radically unexpected 
upside down way. You see, Jesus taught that the exile that God had always intended to end, that he was ending, was spiritual, not physical. God's kingdom returned, not by worldly might, but through a poor Galilean who preached loving our enemies, inviting in the stranger, caring for the least of these, healing our world. God's king returned, not as a warrior to defeat Rome, but as a king of peace, here to defeat evil itself not through power, but through self-sacrificial love. God's presence returned, not to a building, but to dwell in us, broken human beings, through his spirit. God moving with his spirit to renew our hearts, minds, relationships, identity, our humanity, to teach us how to be human again. In Jesus, Jeremiah's promises of return lit up in a new way, The end of exile isn't when we get somewhere else out of suffering, out of this life. No, what Jesus taught is it's when we find God with us. The exile ended because God through Jesus now dwells with us. And in Jesus, God said definitively that those spaces where he feels most absent are in fact the very places where we find him moving, working, and loving that in his story, we can find home again during any exile because we can know for certain that he is always with us right where we are at. And in that, I find two wonderful things I want to close with. First, I find good news. See, I have felt exiled and far from home many times in my life. And I'm sure I will feel that way again. Those times where God feels absent, where like Boy Scouts, my comforts are stripped away. My people are distant or gone. The safety of home feels so far away. And I know I'm not the only one. I know I'm not the only one who has felt this way or feels this way in this E3 community. The spaces of exile, when you hear it's cancer for the first time. The spaces of exile, when you lose a parent, a child, a spouse, a best friend. The spaces of exile, when you lose your career, watch the relationship you thought would last end, when you fail even though you did everything right the spaces of exile that make us ask, why, why God? And I find good news in that because Jeremiah shows us that we can be honest with God in naming those spaces and hurting within them and being human within them. He shows us that God can handle our pain, our doubt, our disappointment, our fear, our anger. And that's good news. But even more than that, he promises us that we can find God in those spaces too. That God walks with us and shapes us through the exiles of our life as he leads us to return home again to him, to the promised land. But second, what I find in this is I find a challenge. See, like Last week, this is part of God's story 
that is still unfolding. As Christians, we believe that this return is available to us now, but our world still longs for and awaits its full return, its full renewal. And in that, there's this tension that I think needs to challenge us. See, on one hand, it challenges us to live out God's return now, to be a people that possess an almost inhuman and almost alien compassion, mercy, joy, gratitude, and love who witness to God's return through how they live in the present, to how they live in such a way that they point other people home again. I think that's beautiful. But on the other hand, it should also make us feel like exiles in this world. We should never truly feel at home in how this world works and it's broken human systems, and it's broken human kingdoms that are not our home. I mean, this is why Jesus said we are to be in the world, but not of it. It's why Peter put it this way. He said that we're supposed to be temporary residents and foreigners in this world. The author of Hebrews called it living as sojourners, travelers without a nation, people who live in this world's human kingdoms, yet refuse to conform to how they operate, to how they break our world. In Philippians, one of my favorite passages, Paul writes to disciples who are Roman citizens, disciples who claimed Christ as king on one hand, yet had to find a way to live in an empire on the other. And what Paul challenged them to do was to find their citizenship in heaven, to be peoples whose citizenship is in the kingdom of God and whose ultimate allegiance and loyalty is to Christ, their king alone, not Rome. And that's a radical statement to make in a Roman empire. It's the kind of statement that gets you crucified. I mean, this is the challenge of these authors and it's a challenge of this prophetic theme of exile and return. By returning home to God's kingdom, we must be people who are willing to feel like exiles, like sojourners, far from home when it comes to what feels at home to our world. The pursuit of power, greed, injustice, oppression, violence. These things should never feel like home to us. We live here, but follow God alone and set our eyes on his kingdom alone his ways, his purposes for healing our world. We must remember this always, but we really need to remember this right now. See, I'm not sure if you know this, but there's an election going on that's going to come to its fulfillment in the next week. And we all have to research, listen, talk to people we agree with and don't agree with, pray for discernment and come to a decision about what's best for our country. And don't worry, I'm not telling you how to vote. That is not my job. No, I bring this up because I want to talk about something that's weighed on me for a long time, something that I feel compelled to speak to in this season. That is how we as Christians in America approach politics. See, I believe Christians should engage in the political process. It's part of our world that has a real impact on people, especially the most vulnerable, the least of these, as Christ called them. 
But I also believe that many Christians have become too at home in American power and politics. Many of us, myself included, have at times confused our country with the kingdom of God, political power with the work of building it, politicians with our king, and as a consequence, our witness with winning the rat race of politics. And in that, we have become too at home in how it lives in our world and how it operates in our world. We have become too at home in its vitriol. We have become too at home in its division, too at home in its falsehoods, too at home in its oppositional will towards others, too at home in its dehumanization of image bearers of God who simply disagree with us. And in that, I believe the prophets remind us that that's not who we are called to be. God's people are called to be people who call out the brokenness they see in our world and work to heal it, but never at the cost of our witness, never at the cost of our mercy, our compassion, our love, our justice, our righteousness, our reflection of our King. We are called to be in it, not of it, because our King is greater and we are citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world, America or otherwise. And when we get that wrong, I think we become just like the brokenness in our world that God has been working to heal through his people. And we stop being a light to the other nations of our world and we stop pointing to the God of a different way. Politics are a real part of our reality but one that we must walk within as strangers, as sojourners, as exiles living in a kingdom with far different priorities, values, and standards than God's and thus our own, especially when it comes to how we treat other human beings, no matter what we think of them. We cannot forget in this season where our home is. God's wonderful vision for our world and who we are meant to be when we adopt that vision. So, inevitably, after someone wins, whether it's your candidate or not, I challenge you to remember who your king is, to remember what kingdom you are a citizen of. I challenge you to remember who you represent in this world to let that shape how you respond to what comes next. Because ultimately, we will have to find a way to do life together again after. And the world needs a different way. It needs more divine compassion, justice, mercy, civility, humility, love. It needs God's people to point it home again. And we can only do that if we're willing to live as exiles and to return to a home that is out of this world. That's the challenge I leave you with. And I think if we do that, we can be good news to a world that desperately needs it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, you are sovereign. You are the Lord, 
of creation. God, we come to you now as people who seek your kingdom, who seek the overlap of heaven and earth, who seek your will above anything else. God, show us how to be like you, how to be a light to others, and how we love, how we care for the least of these, how we pursue justice and righteousness, and how we remain faithful to you as our king and nothing else. God, heal us. Heal this land. Lead us home. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.